0: This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass Politics is sponsored by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. That's Fiverr with two R's. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services with over a hundred categories all offered for a fixed base price of just five bucks. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can possibly imagine, all offered at a fixed base price of just $5. And right now, if you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, You'll be showing your support for the show, and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. And before we start the show, I have one quick announcement. I need your help with a special project, folks. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a survey of our listeners, and it would be a huge help to me if you would take a few seconds to participate. No matter how long you've been a listener or how frequently you listen to the show, we want to know our audience better and we want to know what you want. So please take a few minutes and just visit the website at kickasspolitics.com. You'll find a listener survey link right on the homepage, or there's a survey link in the show notes to this episode as well. It'll only take 60 seconds. We won't ask you for your personal information or put you on some list. I'm not going to call you up at suppertime or fill your email with spam. In fact, you can even fill out the survey anonymously if you want. It's just a few quick questions to help us understand who's listening, and honestly, it'll be a huge help to me. Thanks a million, folks. And now I hope you enjoy the podcast. Havana, Cuba. Birthplace of the Mambo. Cardi rum, and of course, those inimitable Cuban cigars. In its heyday from the 1920s to the late 50s, the island was a tropical paradise for American pleasure seekers. Sin City on the Caribbean. Prohibitions got you down? Come to Havana and drink Cuba Libres until you can float your way back to Florida. Gambling? It's only a 90 minute boat ride away. Girls? Well, Let's just say that 53 years after the embargo, American men still talk about those Cuban senoritas. In those days, Havana offered anything and everything for Americans with money to spend, all thanks to a friendly government and a booming resort business run by American gangsters like Meyer Lansky. But the party ended on the first day of 1959 when President Fulgencia Batista hopped a plane for the Dominican Republic just as Fidel Castro's fighters approached the outskirts of Havana. You know, it's the New Year's Eve scene from Godfather Two.
1: There's a plane waiting for us to take us to Miami in an hour, all right? Don't make a big thing about it. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart.
0: Since then, Cuba has taken on an almost mythical mystique in the popular imagination of Americans. Today, Havana is a nostalgia lover's heaven. Everywhere you go, you can see the faded glamour left over from better days. And people still living much as they did six decades ago. Driving Studebakers and Chevy Bel Airs that look like they're practically held together with duct tape. And the old Hotel Nacional de Cuba, once the swanky playground of America's elite, now seems more like a set piece from the Grand Budapest Hotel. No town in the world, short of Williamsburg, Virginia, has been frozen in time quite like Havana. Ghostlike, intoxicating, forbidden, yet irresistible. But there's nothing romantic or nostalgic about the story of how Cuba got to this point. And today, many Americans are all too eager to sweep that history under the rug in the race to reopen relations and hurry down to Havana before they can fix things up too much. My guests on the show today were witnesses to the overthrow of Batista and the rapid descent of Cuba under Castro. It's a story of fathers and sons, two young boys who were forced to say goodbye to their parents as they boarded the so-called Peter Pan flight for America and the tragic fate of the dads they had to leave behind. In the first half of today's podcast, I'll talk with Carlos Ayer. Today, he's a professor of history and religious studies at Harvard, and a best-selling author who won the 2003 National Book Award for his true story, Waiting for Snow in Havana, Confessions of a Cuban Boy. And after that, I'll talk with Tomás Regalado, after coming to America as a kid, he followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a journalist for Spanish-language broadcast network Visión, and he was the first Cuban-American member of the White House press corps. Now Tomás Regalado is mayor of the city of Miami, which is home to the largest population of Cuban-Americans. Today, these men will speak the truth about life under the Castro regime. And they'll also have some strong words for President Obama about coddling a murderous regime and getting in bed with the last remaining communist dictator. Coming up in just a moment.
2: Hollywood to Washington. It's time for kick-ass politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. I'm joined
0: today by Carlos Ayer. As a young boy, he personally witnessed the descent of Cuba under Fidel Castro. Years later, he wrote about it in his best-selling book, Waiting for Snow in Havana: Confessions of a Cuban Boy which won the 2003 National Book Award. And then he chronicled his life as a 10-year-old refugee in the sequel, Learning to Die in Miami, Confessions of a Refugee Boy. Carlos, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: Carlos, I wanted to have you on the podcast because my general sense, not just because of the recent diplomatic developments, but my general sense is that Americans today don't really have an understanding of just what happened in Cuba so long ago and just how many lives were shattered by Fidel Castro. In Waiting for Snow in Havana, you paint a very vivid picture of what that descent was like. Talk about that. What was Cuba like for your family before Castro and what was it like after Castro?
2: Since I was born in 1950, it means that my entire childhood was lived under President Batista. He was very corrupt, but he wasn't a totalitarian type of dictator who wanted to control people's thoughts and control everyone's life. There was fairly good freedom of the press under Batista, as long as you didn't publish articles about his corruption. As a matter of fact, in 1958, Cuba had more newspapers, and radio stations per capita than the United States. Cuba had a booming economy because of sugar. It had a very good infant mortality rate. Cuba had 78% literacy rate in 1958. Wow. That's higher than several American states in 1960.
0: Wow. Well, Carlos, what was your family like?
2: My father was a, you know, he was a lawyer. He didn't like practicing law, so he became a judge. My mother was like all 1950s uh, housewives, you know, at home all the time. For, for my family, we were middle class. I guess some might even say that we were upper middle class. So, yes, you know, I wasn't poor. I wasn't starving. Neither was my family. But most Cubans were not starving or poor either. And that's what most Americans don't realize. You know, they like to think that Cuba was a third world country. There's some kind of third world hellhole. That was rescued by, by Fidel Castro, but that's not the case. It was a thriving place. Cuba had millions of middle class people, consumer goods that people could buy freely. That Cuba immediately vanished between 1959 and 1961 in two years. It, 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 it all ground to a halt.
0: Yeah, what was that like? I mean, how quickly did things
2: begin to collapse? You know, without private property without private enterprise, where the state runs everything, everything very quickly fell apart. But the worst thing is not losing stuff or property. Let me put it this way. After 1960, you had to keep your thoughts to yourself. If you didn't, you'd be in trouble because there was absolute thought and mind control. I know so many people who were suddenly thrown into prison simply for voicing the least amount of dissent I have one uncle who was a chemical engineer and he was fired from his job. Somebody showed up, he didn't know this person, showed up at work one day and point blank asked him, do you believe in God? And he said, yeah, of course I do. Well, that was it. He lost his job. I had one cousin shot to death by a firing squad. Wow. I had an uncle who was tortured. And my, my cousin who spent 23 years in prison was tortured too. So, yeah, it's, um, it's affected us. We're not a political family, but when something so drastic happens and you're young, you're forced to become political.
0: Did you see a lot of disillusionment when Fidel took over? Because many people in Cuba supported Castro at the time of the revolution and saw him as sort of Cuba's version of George Washington. And from what I understand, it really wasn't until he took power that he truly revealed himself as a communist communist. And a dictator. That's right. What were your recollections of, uh, of how your friends and family felt about Castro prior to the overthrow of Batista?
2: There was a lot of enthusiasm at first. And, you know, Fidel promised elections, but it didn't turn out that way. You know, he very quickly uh, did away with all the other revolutionaries who were not part of his move. The most active, actually, that took the greatest risks and did the greatest damage to Batista, was not Fidel. It was the university students who practiced urban guerrilla warfare, And he did away with all of them immediately. He did away with everyone immediately. And anyone who tried to warn the public or tried to warn the United States and other countries about what was really happening uh, found himself in prison or dead.
0: Well, one of the things I guess that's always been hard for me to wrap my head around is the fact that. Even once Fidel began to show his true colors, he was still pretty popular. Where was that support coming from?
2: By January 1960, it it was all sliding downhill. He still had a lot of support, though, because when you promise people who have been poor that all the wealth is going to get redistributed, you're going to get a lot of support. I had two relatives who were diehard communists. They had businesses of their own, but they gave them up willingly. So and, and you can still find these true believers in Cuba. Even after 56 years of total failure, they still believe in this utopian uh, dream that you can redistribute wealth and, and wipe out all inequalities.
0: And, and the result is that now everyone's living in poverty, basically.
2: Well, yes. You want to know what life is like in Cuba and what happened in Cuba? Read Orwell's Animal Farm and read 1984. That's Cuba.
0: Well, your first book ends with you getting on uh, what they called the Pedro Pan or Peter Pan flight for America.
2: Uh, What was the
0: Peter Pan flight?
2: The name was invented by an American journalist. And it's a stupid name, too, because uh, in Peter Pan, the children get to remain children forever and never land. But all of us who, who left the country without our parents, we lost our childhood immediately. We became orphans and we had to grow up really fast. It was a program um, run by the federal government in the United States to get children out of Cuba as quickly as possible. And it ran from Christmas of 1960 until October 1962. And in that time, 14,000 children left without their parents. And when the door closed in October of 1962 as a result of the missile crisis, there were 80,000 more children waiting to leave.
0: That many people wanted to get their kids out of Cuba. Wow. Um, So things got so bad in Cuba to the point that people thought that their kids would be better off separated from their own parents?
2: The idea was get the children out quickly because, in fact, many children were being taken away from their parents anyway. The children they identified as talented would be sent to Eastern Europe. For the rest of the kids, um, they'd be taken away from their parents too because the so-called free education in Cuba is not free. All children have to spend the entire summer doing agricultural labor away from their parents. And this is still true. This is still the case. And they would um, try to send you as far from your parents as possible. Plus, the schools were completely taken over by the government and is nothing but indoctrination. So parents had this difficult choice to make. The idea was you send the kids, get them out of danger immediately, and then as a parent, you either follow a few months later or, you know, things will change because nobody thought the Castro regime would, would last so long.
0: And that wasn't an easy process for either because apparently Only, you were in foster homes uh, for about three and a half years Before your mother finally was able to come to the United States.
2: Right. And my father never got to come. Uh, By October of 62, about half had been reunited with their parents. But when the missile crisis put an end to all migration from Cuba, and it was Fidel Castro who stopped it, not the U.S., he wouldn't let anybody leave. The parents of half of us were trapped. My mother had an exit permit for November 7th, 1962 the door closed on October 26th, So she missed it by two weeks. And then she had to wait another more than three years to be reunited with us. Jeez, that is heartbreaking.
0: Uh, so then what was your adjustment like to life here in America?
2: We all had to grow up really fast and it was, there was a lot of trauma, but we all adapted. We didn't really feel the results of all that quick adaptation until we were in our 20s and 30s. You suppress a lot of things. You just you, you bury them deeply. But, you know, they're the kind of things that just bounce up, especially after you start having children of your own. The hardest adjustment we had to make was not coming to the U.S. without our parents, but rather being reunited with our parents and having our roles reversed because we knew English. <laughs> Most of them didn't. And most of them came to the U.S. with no transferable job skills. So immediately, every Cuban adult who came to the United States was an instant poor person. Even if they were working, they were working poor. This was especially tough on people who had had careers or businesses of their own in, in, in the old Cuba. And plus there was a lot of discrimination as against all Hispanics back in the 1960s. It wasn't easy.
0: Well, as a young refugee from Cuba, did you interact with many other Cuban exiles? And what was the atmosphere of the morale like among the Cuban dissidents who were newly arrived in America?
2: My first foster family was American, an American Jewish family. And I lived with them for nine months. So there I didn't have much contact with Cubans. And uh, then I went to live in a foster home that was for basically for juvenile delinquents. But all the kids in there were Cuban. So then I had to re immerse myself in Cuban culture. After that, my brother and I went to live in central Illinois in a in a small city, Bloomington, where um we were basically the only foreigners, <laughs> not just the only Cubans. We were the only foreigners. So I, I lost touch with Cuban culture. And then when my mom arrived, the um, Cuban refugee center in Miami couldn't handle all these Cubans coming in. They sent them anywhere they could. So they sent her to Chicago. But, you know, Chicago is a huge city. So I lost my Cuban identity. And for me, that wasn't hard to do because, you know, I was a kid and I just re- I realized By the time I was about 14, that, um, you know, it's not likely things are going to change in Cuba. It's not likely I'll ever be going back. So, And I liked it. I liked the United States.
0: Well, like you said, it took three years for you to be reunited with your mother, but your father, you never saw again. Did you ever come to a point where you realized that you were probably never going to see him again? Or did you always hold out hope?
2: Or I always held up hope from 1962 until he died in 1976. The only communication I had was letters. Couldn't talk to him. Phone calls were limited to three minutes with somebody listening on the other end. So you couldn't say anything. And actually he died, um, he developed heart disease when he was about the age I am now, 64. And uh, that's when they allowed him to leave. They gave him permission, and he started. It was a long process. But he died before he could leave. I, I, thought, I always thought I'd see him again, even if briefly. You know, I knew he was sick You know, in 1976. I knew he wasn't doing too well, but I thought he had a few more years left in him.
0: So when your dad passed away, they wouldn't allow you to come back and attend his funeral?
2: We didn't find out. He was dead until he was already buried. So I'm passionate about letting the truth be known about the Castro regime. Uh, and it's quixotic, okay? I'm like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. But I have to try anyway. Because as a historian, it just bothers the hell out of me that the wrong history that most people have in their heads about Cuba. And then the results that that false history uh, has, as, for instance, in the current occupant of the White House, um, who dismisses everything that happened in Cuba uh, before he was born as unimportant. Now, he doesn't care about Cubans. He knows damn well that life is not going to improve for Cubans as a result of his actions, but he doesn't care. Repression has increased since December 17th, and it's going to keep increasing because they know now that they there's not, there's no... There's no pushback from the United States. There's no pushback from anybody, so
0: yeah, well, we've all but given the Castro's our blessing pretty much. uh well, Carlos, before I let you go, now that things are opening up again, do you have any desire to go back even for a visit?
2: Be realistic, no, I don't think so. For one thing, I can't go right now, even if there were direct flights because I've been declared an official enemy of the state by dedicating my National Book Award to the political prisoners in Cuba. That's all it took. So my books are banned in Cuba, and I'm an official enemy of the state. So I used to think maybe in my 70s, maybe in my 80s, if I live that long, I'll get to go because things will have changed. But now, thanks to what happened on December 17th, I don't think I'll ever be able to go again. And even if they said, come on down, I I w- uh, I wouldn't go.
0: Well, Carlos, thank you very much for taking the time to share your story. It is heartbreaking. We're going to take a short break, and then I'll talk with the man who has his finger on the pulse of the largest Cuban-American community. I'm, of course, talking about the neighborhood of Little Havana and Miami Mayor Tomas Regalado. He says if the president wants to let Cuba open a consulate in Florida, don't do it in Miami. That's coming up in just a moment. If you enjoyed the first half of the podcast with my guest Carlos Ayer, then I highly recommend both of his best-selling books, Waiting for Snow in Havana, which won the 2003 National Book Award, and the sequel to it, Learning to Die in Miami. And right now, you can download the audio version of his books for free with a special promotion for our listeners from Audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. For a free 30 day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be Carlos's book Waiting for Snow in Havana or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com/backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download your free audiobook. And if you like kickass politics and want to help keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep us producing new and interesting programs in the future. That's gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. And now enjoy the rest of the show. We're back, and my guest in the second half of the podcast is Mayor Tomas Regalado. After coming to America at age 14 on one of those same Peter Pan flights, Tomas Regalado became a journalist, eventually working at the Spanish language network Univision and becoming the first Cuban American member of the White House press corps. From 1996 to 2009, he served as Miami City Commissioner, and since 2009, he continues to serve as the Mayor of Miami. Mayor Regalado, thank you for joining me over the phone to talk about Cuba. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: First off, I just want to ask, your father spent 22 years as a political prisoner under Fidel Castro, kept away from his wife and family in miserable conditions until he was finally released and allowed to come to the U.S. and join you in Miami. If he were alive today, what do you think he would say about this sudden overnight shift in U.S. policy toward Cuba?
1: Well, you know, he, he was jailed because he was a journalist. He was jailed because uh, he was outspoken and uh, he fought the Batista regime uh, before Castro. As a matter of fact, he knew Castro during the revolution. Uh, he became the president of the Cuban Journalists Association in 1959 when the revolution came to power, when people thought that we were going to have uh, a free democratic uh, country at the time. And, uh, and my father was an advocate uh, for free speech and free media. And uh, because of that, he denounced uh, the regime and went to jail. He always asked the United States to respect human rights uh, in the world, and especially in Cuba. So my father will say, if he were to be alive, you have to have uh, free speech, uh, free press, uh, free elections, uh, something that the Cuban government has not committed to the United States for this uh, relationship that just started. And and that is why, as an American, I question the fact that the United States has always been the beacon of uh, human rights and hopes uh, of democracy for the world. And on this case, on this particular case, we haven't been asking the right things to the Cuban government.
0: Is there a part of you that thinks well, what the hell was the point of all this? Why did my father suffer for 22 years in prison? What have we been fighting for for 56 years now if the President of the United States can just throw in the towel and erase all of that with the stroke of a pen?
1: And, and, and this is exactly what, what has happened. I think that the normalization of relations, it's only a headline. Uh, so he can just say uh, that he fixed a failed policy of many administration by establishing relations, but that's the end of the story.
0: Right, and many people were hopeful that Raul Castro was going to be some kind of a reformer. Do you see any difference from one Castro brother to the other?
1: The language of Raul Castro today, after the flag uh, was raised in Havana, is the exact language Of Fidel Castro in 1960 when he broke relations with the U.S. Nothing has changed, not even the wording. They are not even willing to say, well, you know, we were willing to sit down with the U.S. government and talk about human rights and talk about uh, other issues and we we will move forward. It could have been a good thing, but I don't think that that President Obama He can claim that he brought back democracy to Cuba, which should have been his legacy. I think that this is not a triumph for the United States of America.
0: Yeah, well, if it is, it's a pretty hollow one. Uh, Last month, the White House held a secret meeting with about 80 prominent Cuban-American leaders to discuss the president's plan to normalize relations. Were you at that meeting? And if so, what was said?
1: No, I wasn't. I was not invited. But I do know people that were there. It wasn't that secret, you know, when you have three people in the room, uh, there's no way to keep a secret. Uh, and several friends of mine were there. Uh, the idea of the meeting was the official line is, okay, the embargo has not worked. Cuba has not been able to become democratic. So let's do away with the embargo and see what happens and uh, and let's keep the finger crossed and let's hope that everything will be okay.
0: What would you say to those who do make that argument that this strategy hasn't worked for 53 years so we need to change our strategy and try something different?
1: Well, I, I totally agree but the strategy that the White House is using is worse than the embargo. because it's a strategy of not doing anything.
0: As the mayor of the city with the largest Cuban-American population and arguably the most invested in whatever happens here, did the White House reach out to you at any point?
1: Yes, they did. Before the president made the announcement uh, last December, uh, one of the White House aides, Inform me of what the president was about to say, and also later after the announcement uh I had the visit here at City hall of the national security advisor for Latin America and the head of the cuban the the u s intersection in Havana uh, They were very gracious uh, but at the end of the day uh they said exactly what they are saying to the media. And I told them uh, that uh, I I, I think that for several reasons, this strategy won't work. And they admitted that this is a very long-term goal. Uh, And I also told them uh, that I will oppose the Cuban consulate here in Miami because this is an unfunded mandate. Uh, because the State Department is not going to pay for our police uh, to guard the Cuban consulate, the, to protect the protester, to protect the people that would go to the consulate, to protect the Cuban diplomats. So you feel uh, that it's a safety uh, issue? And, uh, it is a it is a safety issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the U.S. flag was raised. In Havana, that same day, we had uh, several fistfights in the streets of Miami between people that feel that was the right thing and people that feel that it was the wrong thing. And the police had to intervene. People were arrested. So why the taxpayers of Miami have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in police overtime uh, to take care of the Cuban consulate?
0: How did they put that when you had that meeting? How, how forcefully <laughs> did they suggest uh, that Miami needed a Cuban consulate?
1: No, they didn't. Uh, I mean, forcefully, they said that it was a very strong possibility uh, because ah. it's all about what okay. the Cuban government want. If the Cuban government won a consulate in Miami, well, the U.S. have to accept that. Uh, because that's the way that international relations goes. But having said that, and and I said to them, look, you know, maybe 60% of the people don't care, but uh, 40% of the people are going to care. Are we going to have protests? Are we going to have people uh, fighting against uh, their own people uh, at the place uh, like we had? when the Venezuelan consulate was open here in downtown Miami. I mean, we have to send the police like every day. So this is a problem for us.
0: As mayor, you're out there in Little Havana on the streets talking to people every day. What have you been hearing from the Cuban-Americans in Miami?
1: That the Cuban-Americans do not trust the Cuban government and they do not believe that this is going to end up bringing back democracy uh, to Cuba. The Cuban people think we have had uh, a lot of offerings to Cuba while Cuba has not offered anything back to the U.S. There are some people that say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's good that we have relations. But when you ask them, well, why, why, what does that mean? They say, oh, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, because Cuba is not free, but you know, it's good to have the American flag there. Very simplistic, you know.
0: Are there people in your community who see the idea of a Cuban consulate right in the heart of Miami as sort of a slap in the face?
1: Yes, they do. They do because they, they feel that the wounds have not healed yet for many people. There's a lot of people here in Miami whose husband was killed in Cuba or uh, the father was in jail or the cousin was shot by the Cuban government or a friend died in the Strait of Florida. It's, you know, the, for 56 years, the Cuban tragedy has touched every single family in the island. So you have all these people that have this uh, feeling of of not closure in terms of Cuba.
0: Well, there are also those who would say on the flip side of that, that, you know, your city having the largest population of Cuban Americans in the country, there are families who are going to want to finally be reunited. And it's where there is perhaps the greatest need for a Cuban consulate. What do you say to that argument?
1: Well, I think that's correct, too. But I will tell you something. Families have been reunited long before Obama decided to have good relations because, remember, uh, the Congress of the United States passed the Cuban Adjustment Act, which is the only law that protects one single nationality with citizenship, with refugee aid, and no other nationality has that benefit. We have 20,000 regular visas allocated each year to Cubans in the island. We have thousands of people claimed by their American citizens' relatives who can enter here with the green card the minute that they step on uh, U.S. soil. So, you know, this has been happening. Uh, for many years now. That's why we have uh, so many Cubans here.
0: Well, Mayor Regalado, I'll ask you just one more question. It's the same question I asked my guest earlier. President Obama has recently indicated that commercial flights will likely resume between the U.S. and Havana by the end of the year. Do you think you'll ever set foot on Cuban soil again?
1: No, I don't think so. I really don't. I would, I would not go back to a visit. I don't think that I can uh, step on, on Cuban soil uh, while a government that did this to my father and to many other fathers and, and mothers uh, is still the same and is still there.
0: Yeah. Mayor Tomas Regalado, thank you again for taking the time to give me your perspective straight from the heart of Little Havana. You're welcome. And before we go, Carlos Ayer has one more word of caution for American companies that may be seeing dollar signs and opportunity in doing business with Cuba.
2: If the embargo is lifted, what it means is Cuba will be allowed to buy on credit. And everyone knows, and again, this is public knowledge, Cuba never pays its debts. Russia recently, Putin forgave $19 billion in loans. Uh, China restructured its debt. Europe restructured its debt with Cuba. Cuba now paying pennies on the dollar or pennies on the euro or the ruble. And now what's going to happen is if the embargo is lifted, American farmers are going to sell to Cuba on credit. They're never going to get paid. And it's American taxpayers who are going to end up paying because the agriculture department is not going to let these poor farmers go bankrupt. Folks,
0: it's one thing to want to change strategy. But the Obama policy towards Cuba is no strategy at all. This is not a victory for America, and certainly not for the Cuban people. By their own admission, the Castro brothers have said that nothing will change in Cuba. No free speech, no free press, no freedom of assembly, no elections. And as we saw from the protests that took place just as John Kerry was raising the flag over our embassy in Havana, the arrests and the beatings will only continue. Of all the times over the past 53 years, a U.S. president chose the moment when America was holding all the cards to concede defeat to a brutal tin-pot dictator lying on his deathbed. Fidel always said he would outlive the embargo. And unfortunately, I guess he was right. Thanks again to Mayor Tomas Regalado and Carlos Ayer for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode then read Carlos Ayre's best-selling book, Waiting for Snow in Havana. And you can also check out the sequel to it, Learning to Die in Miami. I'll post a link on our website where you can order them from Amazon. Or if you prefer, you can download the audio version of these books for free thanks to that special offer for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. You'll get a 30-day trial and a free audiobook, which can be Waiting for Snow in Havana by my guest today, Carlos Ayer, or any of over 180,000 titles to choose from. Again, it's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage. Now be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. And if you like the show, then support Kick-Ass Politics by making a donation on our website or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Because starting next week, I'll be doubling the number of podcasts we put out every week. But that also means doubling the expenses. And even producing one episode a week isn't cheap. So, if you want more episodes of Kick Ass Politics, then please donate on the website or go to gofundme.com/backslash kickasspolitics. And once again, I really hope that you'll help us out by taking that listener survey. It's on our website, or you can find the survey link in the show notes to this podcast. We really want to know who's listening to the show, and it'll be a huge help to me, both for our advertisers and also just from a content standpoint. So I hope you'll take 60 seconds to do that. It'll be a huge help to me. You can keep up with the show on our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, gripes and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. In the next show, I'll talk with Mark Stein. He's a best-selling author and conservative political commentator, but you probably know him best as the frequent guest host for Rush Limbaugh. In his new book, he's gathered dozens of the world's most prominent scientists to take an unbiased scientific look at the decidedly unscientific report that became the basis for Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, The Kyoto Treaty, and nearly two decades of global warming hysteria. And then later in the week, I'll talk with the modern-day monuments men who are risking their lives to protect priceless artifacts and World Heritage sites from the destructive path of ISIS. So be sure to tune in then. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.